Well, there's been quite a few disruptions of our afternoon services, so it's been a while since we started uh, First Timothy, and we've had two studies in the letter of Paul, the first letter of Paul to Timothy, very important letter, part of the pastoral epistles, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, valuable for uh, today and for the modern world as it has been for every century. And I couldn't help thinking during my preparation that the Lord permits these things to happen. And false teachers and all the things that go wrong in the church, it's history so that we may learn from history, so that we may be prepared when we face these things ourselves. So let's give our attention to the Word of God as we read just a short passage, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God which is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. As I mentioned, the pastoral epistles, these three letters, as well as Paul's letter to Philemon, were personal letters. And yet, as we've noted, especially in the case of the pastoral epistles, they were also intended to be read to the churches. We have noted in this case to the church in Ephesus. We have noticed the importance of these letters, both doctrine and practice, and what we believe and how we must live in the church and how we must live day to day in our personal lives. But I don't know if you notice, there is, however, no personal greeting in this letter or blessing pronounced on the church except his wonderful, endearing greeting to Timothy, his child in the faith. All the other epistles greet the church in Rome, etc., etc. The church in Ephesus, to tell the truth, was in disarray. And Paul addresses this and charges Timothy in the strongest terms to address these problems in his ministry there. And has urged him to stay there when he wanted to go with Paul. We noted not just the endearing threefold blessing of Paul to Timothy, that prayer last time, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That triple, unusual triple blessing to his son in the faith. But we also notice that the strongest expression of Paul's authority in all of his letters is found here. And this is also to endorse Timothy's authority as a minister and as a sub-apostle, if you like, charged with a difficult and a monumentally important task to address both 
false doctrine and false practice in the church at Ephesus. Verse 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle, he says, that's how he starts the letter, not greetings, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, we don't actually know exactly when the church at Ephesus was established, but we know on Paul's second missionary journey where after a brief stopover and dropping off Priscilla and Aquila there to assist and continue the work on his hurried way to Antioch. We find that in chapter 16 of Acts. But Paul ultimately returns to Ephesus and spends an intense two to three years of ministry in the church. And that ministry was filled with extraordinary power. And all the things in the city and the upheaval of of witchcraft and all sorts of things. Uh, and Ephesus became a command center for gospel outreach to Asia Minor. And Ephesus was the most important city uh, of the Roman province of Asia. So we asked this morning what was going on in Ephesus. Exactly what Paul had warned them of by the Holy Spirit. That's what was going on. Paul warned them by the Holy Spirit at his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20 and verse 29 was happening right now. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves within the church will arise men speaking twisted some even believe the resurrection hadn't occurred in 2 Timothy, those kind of things, to draw away the disciples after them. Proud, puffed up men with fancy theories, as we'll see today. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. That was what was going on right now. Paul wasn't guessing. Paul wasn't just saying, human nature, you're going to have assholes. No, it's by the Holy Spirit that he says, fierce wolves will come among you. This is going to happen. There's going to be false teachers from your own number. And I'm sure he trembled even as he shared those words. And now Paul writes his first letter to Timothy, probably around 64 AD. Five years has elapsed since his ministry in Ephesus, don't quote me on the exact dates, approximately. Trouble has come to the church from within, and Paul had already dispatched Timothy to Ephesus to deal with the problems. It was important that Timothy succeed. So Paul writes specific directions about church conduct and order in this first letters. And this was not a case of false teachers coming from outside or Jewish Christians insisting on traditions and circumcision, like in the epistle to the Galatians. This was far more dangerous. This was from within. This was their own leaders and possibly some of their elders, distorting the Old Testament scriptures and the main message of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we should never be surprised. And COVID came. And what happened to churches? There was a lot of unity. 
we continued, not without our troubles, but Satan got a foothold in churches. Churches were split over these things, and people came, became distracted from the true gospel. This is not only a first century problem. Satan uses pride in the hearts of men, often leaders in the church, to become distracted and obsessed with the smallest non-essentials. And they just go off at a tangent about the law, about the civil government, or whatever is not the main message of the gospel. As some commentators suggest, by a wrong use of the law. And certainly this was the case in Ephesus. Anything to distract the church from the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as prophesied clearly in the, Old, in the Old Testament and the mystery of Christ revealed in the New. So after the address to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, Paul gets straight to it. He gets down to business. We, for our study this morning, we have three main headings. We observe in the first place, number one, the pressing issue. The pressing issue. Look at verse 3 and 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons. Two men are named in 2 Timothy, which is possibly uh, some of those referring to, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And this seems a little crazy to us. Why would you get distracted? We're reading in numbers and all these genealogies and things. That, and then we're taking those things and getting sidetracked and coming with wonderful theories and all sorts of stories. We don't know the details of these things. But if I had to question or ask you today, when is the church of Jesus Christ in trouble and under real, real threat? Think of the United States of America. When will the church be in real trouble and under real threat? And the answers that you may give may be quite interesting uh, and varied. Perhaps you'll say, when the gospel is outlawed in America, Christians are persecuted in America, that's when we'll have real trouble. I don't think so. History has shown that during persecution, the church flourishes and spreads more rapidly. The, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Perhaps the church will be in trouble when we neglect evangelism. That's it. We no longer get involved in missions. That's when the church is in real trouble. That would be bad, but you may answer Christ is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. God will still save his elect as long as the gospel is preached in some place. When will the church be in real trouble? May I suggest that the church will be in trouble when she loses her focus on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, I do not mean just the preaching of a gospel message to those who have not heard it, but the focus and main task of the church to declare the whole counsel of God in order to make disciples. Men and women who by grace through faith have believed in Christ alone for their salvation. That's just the first part. Have been brought into the church through being obedient through the waters of baptism. Are being instructed in the faith, in doctrine and practice. Are being sanctified through the word of truth in order that we might become those who worship God in spirit and in truth. Who are a holy people. 
a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, that we might declare his praises, adorned and prepared as a bride for her husband when Christ comes again. All that, all that is salvation. All that is the gospel. That is what Paul refers to as the work of the church, which must remain our focus. At the end of verse 4, he puts it this way, the stewardship from God that is by faith. The stewardship, all of these things, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, starting the Garden of Eden and the promised salvation come at the time of the fall of man. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets and the revelation of the mystery of Christ as Christ comes again, the apostles and the teaching. All this, the church is to be a faithful steward of the gospel of God that is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the big thing. The church will be in trouble when we abandon that which has been entrusted to it. Would we abandon the pattern of sad teaching that has been handed down through the prophets, through the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles? And when we move our focus and our attention and our energies away from this stewardship. This is what happened in Ephesus. This is why the church was in trouble and Timothy had been sent to correct this deviation from the main work of the gospel within its own leadership. What was the distraction? What was the deviation that was capturing their attention? Well, verse 3 and 4 remain in Ephesus. We had charged certain persons not to teach a different doctrine, a different doctrine to the one handed down, a different doctrine to what is in the prophets and what is revealed by Christ and what is in the apostolic teaching, a different doctrine. Brothers and sisters, this could be a, a many different things. The point is, anything that distracts from the true stewardship of the gospel deposit, which starts in the law of God in the Old Testament, because everything in the Old is just a build-up. It's the golden thread of the gospel. It's the shadows and, and, and the uncertainties of the Old Testament and the the prophecies about the Christ, everything in the Old is a build-up, God's plan of redemption. The mystery of Christ in the pages of the Old Testament revealed perfectly in Christ in the pages of the New, which interpret, which always interprets the Old Testament for us, finding fulfillment in the types and the shadows in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel deposit this is the sound doctrine that needs to be preserved. And some of the leaders in Ephesus had become distracted, were puffed up with knowledge about genealogies, senseless arguments. How many angels do you think can dance at the point of the needle? These were all stupid things. We read this and say, how can you get distracted about genealogies? Useless knowledge. Scriptures say myths and endless genealogy which promote speculations where we have the gospel revealed. The Old and New Testament, there is no speculation. There is certainty. There is God's revelation. And they chase after genealogies and theories and speculations and arguments rather than the stewardship of God which is by faith in Christ. That's where the church is truly in trouble. 
And in the modern church, this could be a social gospel, where the folk of the church says, come on, Christians, you've got to focus on the dying, the needy. Let's give money. Let's start a soup kitchen. Let's build a hospital. Let's feed the masses. Let's, let's get a homeless shelter. Let's build hospitals. Or it could be political emphasis that is overly concerned with political life on earth. Republicans and Democrats, the Speaker of the House, he's a believer now, it seems. Or having a church that promotes same-sex marriage. This is the message of our time. We need to be kinder to these people. We need to acknowledge same-sex marriage. There are churches who devote a brother from the conference was staying with us, and they were meeting in a dingy little, tiny little place, one church he was telling about. On top was a beautiful big church with gay prayer, pride flags on. So let's make that our focus. Same-sex marriage or whatever it may be, anything that deviates from the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6 and 7, certain persons swerving from these, that's what the leaders would They were swerving. Traffic's going this way, and so they swerve. They swear, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding even what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The church is in trouble when it swerves from the stewardship of God that is by faith. This was the purpose for which Paul appointed Timothy to his office. And many people would have said, why did you choose Timothy? He's got stomach trouble. He's timid. He, he's young. But he sees in Timothy a man highly regarded in the church, a faithful servant of the church of Christ. And God's strength is made perfect in weakness. And, and Timothy didn't want this. Timothy was happy to go with Paul. I want to go with you to Macedonia. And Paul says, I urged you, remain at Ephesus. And Paul could have commanded him, rather he appeals to his true son of the faith. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. The church is in trouble, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies or promote speculation rather than the stewardship of God, which is by faith. Brothers and sisters, I hope you apply this to your hearts, that we may stay true as a church and as families, as people, to the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and not become distracted about non-issues. And the funniest part is it is the smallest non-issue nonsense that splits churches. Here I quote, Now his business, Timothy, was to take care and to fix both the ministers and the people of that church. Charge them that they teach no other doctrine than what they had received, that they do not add to the Christian doctrine under pretense of improving it or making up the defects of it, that they do not alter it, but cleave to it that which was delivered to them. And so we understand the strong endearments and appeals Paul makes to Timothy. Even in the second letter, use the scriptures correctly, Timothy. The well-known 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God approved, a worker who's no, who's, who's no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He's not talking about genealogies and non-entity, non-important issues. Avoid, he says in 2 Timothy, irreverent babble. That's what it was, irreverent babble, like 
chatter in the marketplace that lead people into ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus, who had swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection had already happened, upsetting the faith of some. That was the pressing issue in Ephesians. This leads us to observe in the second place the urgent charge. The urgent charge. The same verse 3 and 4 charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines, nor devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, etc. There are many charges. I think they're like 12 charges altogether if you read the two epistles. I, I don't count, but there's a lot in both the letters of Paul to Timothy. And here in verse 3 is the first specific charge to Timothy. He must charge certain persons, and these are leaders in the church, so this is not an easy job for Tim and Timothy, for they are teaching not to teach any different doctrine. Leaders in the church are to devote themselves to the pattern of teaching as handed down to them from the apostles. And this is the teaching that will agree with the sound words of Jesus, with which they received from him and which they recorded in the Gospels. And in chapter 6 of the first letter, Paul makes this clear. The end of the chapter, the end of the, the first Timothy's letter, chapter 6, verse 3 to 6. He says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords to godliness, he is puffed up with deceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And then at the end, if you go to the end, the last verse in chapter 6 uh, describes the sound words of Christ, the pattern of teaching, the stewardship of God, the gospel as a deposit, as something put in the apostles' charge, which Timothy must now hand over, that he must teach and hand over to the church, and he must guard this deposit Place a sentry there and on God in this box of truth, if you like. Defend it with your own life, if necessary, because that is the church of Jesus Christ. Now, unlike me, some of you may have a large sum of money. And I want to warn you today, if you keep that under your mattress, be careful, the South Africa will come looking for it. You don't keep it under your mattress, you need to Put it in a safe place. You deposit it at a bank where it is guarded, where it is secure, and most important, where it is federally insured, so that when the bank fails, the federal government are going to write you a check. Here is the sum of all the charges he places on Timothy in these, in these epistles. It is God's deposit. It is the word of God. It is the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at it, 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. Oh, Timothy, 
He loves Timothy. It's his true son. Oh, Timothy, God, the deposit given to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved to the truth. And this surely is the theme of both epistles. God, that deposit. Paul says to Timothy in the second letter, the word of God. The sound words of Jesus Christ through his apostles. This is his, this and this alone is God's word. This is the deposit. Got it and be a good student of it. 2 Timothy 3.16. You should all know this verse. All scripture is God breathed out. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. He commands, he forbids Timothy to permit any new forms of teaching to be introduced, which does not agree with the true and pure doctrine that he had been taught. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13, also, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, God the good deposit entrusted to you. That's his charge. Paul in this text says, follow the sound words you've heard from me. It's First Timothy 1.13. He says the words you've heard from me. Why him? Surely not Paul. Yes, Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. Paul was entrusted with this deposit and he was a faithful steward entrusted to Timothy to pass it on to the church to guard it also. I quote, listen to this. For as the truth of God is one, so there is but one plain manner in teaching it, which is free from false dressing up by man, takes more from the majesty of the spirit than from the parade of human elegance. Whoever departs from that disfigures and corrupts doctrine itself. Therefore, to teach differently must relate to the form, not to teach something different, which would relate to the matter. All the inventions of men are so many corruptions of the Gospels. And this is a message to those who teach, especially those pastors who preach. Ministers must not only be charged to preach the true doctrine of the Gospel, but charged to preach no other doctrine. Consider Paul's words in Galatians 1 and verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Brothers and sisters, as a church, as a people, guard that deposit. Do not become distracted. In the times of the apostles, there were many attempts to corrupt Christianity. And the great Ephesian church was no exception. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2.17, For we are not like so many in the early church already, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Timothy must be a good steward, and steward, approved by God, correctly handling the word of truth. He must not only see to it that he did not preach any other doctrine, 
but he must charge others that they do not add anything of their own gospel uh, or take anything from it, but that they preach it pure and uncorrupt. Timothy, avoid these distractions. Don't even that, open that door. Charge the leaders to stick to the sound words of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 4, 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. 2 Timothy 2.23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, as well as to, in the epistle to Titus also mentions these things. Bad Jewish fables and endless genealogies, for they involve, says one writer, inextricable difficulties and tend only to shake the foundation of a Christian's hope and to fill his mind with perplexing doubts and fears. And he goes on to say, Godly edifying is the end ministers should aim at in all their discourses. Is this godly edifying? Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we speak without thinking, is this godly edifying? in the church, that Christians may be improving in godliness and growing up to a greater likeness to the blessed God. This is the charge to Timothy. This leads us in the third and final place, number three, the pure motive, to the pure motive. Here we're given the positive reason why Paul charges Timothy to command the false teachers to desist immediately. Look at verse 5 and 6. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul instructs Timothy here how to guard against Judaizing teachers or others who mingle fables and, uh, and endless genealogies with the gospel. The true gospel produces faith and love. That's our motive, he says. And this is the test. Does it produce true faith and love? Mixing the gospel with other doctrines is one of the most dangerous things in the world. The church in Africa is still struggles with the Zionist movement that mix ancestral worship with Christianity and try and tie it together. It does not lead to faith. It does not lead to godliness. He shows the end purpose of the law. It is intended to promote love, for love is a fulfilling of the law. Love does no wrong to his neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfilling of the law. The end of the commandment is love. Romans 13, 8, owe no man anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And the main scope and the drift of God's holy law for the believer is to engage us in loving God and one another. And whatever tends to weaken either our love to God or love to the brethren tends to defeat the purpose of the commandment. If we preach a gospel that does not exhort us to these ends, 
we are just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us. John 13, 35. By this, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another, if you love God primarily. Those at Ephesus who were boasting of their knowledge of the law, but they used it to swerve and distract from the sound words of Jesus Christ. That precious deposit would only distract and divide the church and in so doing we're defeating the purpose of the law to draw us near to God, that we would love God. Love, he says, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So what is Paul saying? He says, this is the test. This is the test. Do these false teachings, do these different doctrines produce faith and love? And so he says, here's the good test of stewardship. The motive and the purpose of the message must always end and start with the love of God and for one another. There's no room for sinful, selfish motives. Our love must rise out of three things in the text in verse 5. And they play in there. And make this applications to your own heart. That if you love God and you love your neighbor, these are the three things uh, that we need to search our heart about. Number one... A pure heart. A pure heart. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. Is that the kind of love that we have? Love for others is made possible and is fueled by our love for God. As someone has said, love is the overflow of joy in God which gladly meets the needs of others. These false teachers, with their distracting, useless teachings, were only serving themselves and ignoring the purpose of the law, faith and love towards God. If the Ephesian elders would put a stop to false doctrine and go back to teaching false, sound teaching, that would restore love to God's people. That's what he's saying. That's the test. The aim of our charge is love. Love for God and others must be the starting point of the gospel. This fulfills the greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments depend the law and all the prophets. Secondly, our love must arrive out of a pure heart. Secondly, out of a good conscience. A good conscience. What's a good conscience? My mother, when I was young, used to say, the devil's sitting on this shoulder and he's whispering things to you. If I said something stupid or bad, or sinful, my mom would say, Campbell, the devil is up your skewer. Campbell, the devil is sitting on your shoulder. A good conscience. We can justify anything that we do, give excuses for bad behavior. But a conscience, a good conscience, is a conscience informed and guided by the word of God. That is the mark of those who love with a pure heart. A good conscience is informed and guided by the word of God. We must strive to keep a good conscience. We must exercise our ourselves daily in this virtue. Through a pure heart in Christ Jesus, Hold on to a clear conscience and keep it. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, the scriptures tell us. 
This was the apostles' constant desire and pursuit. As Paul says in Acts chapter 24 and 16, so I'll always take pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. So what is a clear conscience? But an inward awareness of the quality of one's own actions. Inward awareness of the quality of one's own actions guided by the word of God and not by your own ideals, not based on your own standards, but the law of God applied by the Spirit's work in our hearts. That's a clear conscience. And I've heard people say, I missed the Lord's Day. There was an important gathering and I have a clear conscience. Well, your conscience is guided by your own pursuits. A conscience, a clear conscience is guided by the word of God. Conscience informed by love and a pure heart in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.12 For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and, simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. Thirdly and finally, our love must arise from a sincere faith. Our love must arise from a sincere faith. Literally, from a faith without hypocrisy, from a heartfelt belief in the truth of the word of God, this produces faith, which is a gift of God. A sincere faith is a faith in God through the Lord Jesus Christ and that profession of faith means that the way I live displays and agrees with what I profess. That's a sincere faith. And there are too many ministers. And there are too many so-called Christians whose doctrine and whose teaching does not match up to sincere faith in the way that they live. Their profession and their, their faith their life are different. This kind of faith, true faith, sincere faith, is faith without hypocrisy. And this kind of faith, Paul is saying, joins naturally with love and the love of God in our hearts and the trust in his word produces that sincere, unmixed faith in our lives. Doctrine and practice go hand in hand. And these pastoral epistles Mix those two. Let me just give you uh, uh, two examples. Eight times they bring these faith and love together. First Timothy 1.14 And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And to go to the last pastoral epistle, Titus 2 verse 2. All the men are to be sober, single-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Brothers and sisters, all these virtues are taught from the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ, from the law of God, from the deposit that was guarded by the apostles and given to the church. Never sell doctrine short. Never sell doctrine short. Because if you don't have practice, your action will be swerving all the time. Never sell doctrines short. We've seen here in 1 Timothy that false doctrine promotes 
controversies and strife and speculations, vain discussions, but sound doctrine produces real love for God and for one another. May the Lord help us, each one, for us to grow daily in love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for faithful men. We thank you for the law and the prophets. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who came to fulfill all things. We thank you for his sound words that he has revealed to us, the gospel of our salvation. We thank you for the apostles that you gave that guarded this deposit. We thank you for the church who have mostly kept and guarded this deposit. Lord, protect our church from falsehood and the distraction of the true gospel, of the sound deposit given to us in our lives, in our actions, and in our Christian walks. Oh, Lord, help us and fill us with a love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. For we pray in Christ's name.